Thank you for tuning into this webinar, Top 5 Human Capital Risks and What to Do About Them. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Carrie Cox. Carrie is a Senior Organizational Development Consultant for AGH Employer Solutions Organizational Development and Family Business Services Group. She has experience in a variety of human resource functions, including a thorough knowledge of labor laws, compensation structures, employee classification, benefits administration, performance management, and human resource best practices. She served clients in a number of industries, including manufacturing, construction, banking, and not-for-profits. Carrie is a member of the national and local chapters of the Society for Human Resource Management and has earned the SHRM Certified Professional Credential. Additionally, she's certified as a professional in human resources by the Human Resource Certification Institute and is a certified practitioner for the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. Employment law compliance typically rises to the top of the list when most employers consider their biggest employee-related challenges, but others, such as employee recruitment and retention, may have an even greater impact on the organization. In this webinar, we'll review the top five human capital risks in running your business, as well as strategies for mitigating those risks or minimizing the organizational impact. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. It's great to have you here and talking about some really important issues as an employer, as a business owner. So in my work, I get to focus on helping organizations get better by assisting them with various employee needs, issues, and opportunities. And this could mean anything from helping to evaluate compliance efforts or compensation structures to coaching managers or teams on performance issues or even helping hire. So I get to work with a lot of different clients, different size companies, different industries, and they all have different challenges, but we tend to see a lot of trends across the different industries and in, in the different company sizes that we work with. Employment law compliance typically is one of those things that rises to the top of the list when most employers consider their biggest employee-related challenges. But others, such as recruitment or retention of employees, may have an even greater impact on your organization. So today we're going to review top, the top five human capital risks in running your business, as well as strategies for mitigating those risks or minimizing the organizational impact. So we've got a few learning objectives here that uh, we'll get through today. So we'll spend a more significant amount of time on some of the key areas of employment law compliance just at a very high level. Uh, we'll talk about recruitment best practices to help mitigate risk in this area. Um, we want you to walk away understanding the cost of organizational turnover and why this may be a more important area for focus, not just the employment law compliance. We'll look at uh, strategies to retain your employees, so making sure your best employees stay in the organization has significant positive impact to your business. And then we'll look at HR's role in managing employee-related and organizational security data as well. Before we get started, though, I want to go ahead and load our first polling question um, because some of the areas that we'll talk about are impacted by the number of employees in your organization. So if you could just give me an um, idea of how large your company is. If you're less than 15, have 15 to 19 employees, 20 to 49, 50 to 99, or 100 plus. And we'll just leave that open very briefly here and then show you the results there. So it looks like uh, most of you are in organizations of over 100 people. So all of the laws that we're talking about today certainly impact you. 
Um, those of you in the 50 to 99 range, all the things we're talking about pretty much apply to you as well. And then for those of you that are under 15, there are some exceptions and um, you might wanna consider that in terms of some of the laws that we'll talk about today. So we'll go ahead and move on then. Thank you for that information. So employment law compliance is obviously a very significant area of risk within an organization, and it's one that employers typically focus most on. So I'll start with looking at some of the key laws that you need to be aware of. Many of you probably know a lot about these laws or at least are familiar with a number of them, but I want to touch on a high level because sometimes we forget things and sometimes law changes. We've seen a lot of um, change with the current administration in Washington in terms of where areas of focus are even, even when the laws haven't significantly changed. So we need to be aware of what's going on at the national level that impacts us here at the local level too. So some of the more significant areas of risk that we're going to talk about today include anti-discrimination laws, compensation administration, employee benefits administration. Uh, I'm going to touch briefly on federal contract compliance talk about health and safety, immigration compliance, and record keeping. So we've got quite a lot of things to go over regarding any kind of laws that we have at the federal and state level. So with our anti-discrimination laws, most of you are probably familiar with the basics. We've got um, race, color, religion, sex, and national origin, all protected under the um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act back in 1964. So that made it illegal to discriminate on the basis of those uh, characteristics that you see in front of you. For most organizations, um, this covers people who have 15 employees or more. So you'll want to consider your size. This applies to most of you on the call here, but it may not apply to everyone. For those of you that are under 15 employees, though, you may have some individual state requirements that you need to look at as well. Um, because in Kansas, for instance, these kind of anti-discrimination laws apply even if you have as few as four employees. So it, it's just because it doesn't apply at the federal level doesn't mean that it doesn't at the state. In um, 1967, we added age to anti-discrimination laws. And this covers public and private employers with 20 or more employees with the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. So you cannot make any kind of employment decisions based on the fact that somebody is 40 or over. And that can be pretty tricky in some of the discussions you have. So you've got to be really careful when you're planning for retirement, when um, you're looking at different options for continued workforce. You need to be really aware of how you're having those discussions with your employees. With the um, Pregnancy Discrimination Act that was established in 1978, um, this amended Title VII to prohibit discrimination on the basis of pregnancy. So there are some aspects to this law that um, make it illegal for you to discriminate. For instance, when you're hiring, you can't consider the fact that the individual is pregnant and they may need time off to deliver the baby and, and post care. Um, you can't consider that in your hiring practices, but also for promotional practices, you need to be aware of that and make sure that you have appropriate time off policies where individuals can uh, deliver their babies and then have time for childcare after that to recover. 
the uh, ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the Amendments Act um, that was passed later, so 1990 was the original and 2008 was the Amendments Act, covers employers with 15 or more employees, so it protects against discrimination in, in employment because of a known or perceived disability. The Amendments Act broadened the intent of the original law pretty significantly, so it has the effect essentially that pretty much anyone in your organization probably has a disability by definition. And so you have to be cautious of whether or not some of the medical conditions that your employees might have actually might fall under the definition of disability. So you may be required to accommodate them in the roles that they have at work currently and make sure you're not discriminating in terms of any future promotional or compensation or training opportunities, anything related to their employee status. We want to make sure that we're giving the same rights to everybody that's in your organization. Another category of anti-discrimination, we've got the Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, and that protects employment and reemployment rights of individuals who have served in the uniformed services or are currently serving. You must give them time off when um, they have active duty assignments or um, some in the reserve duty as well. And then there are certain areas related to the law that require that you give them their job back within certain time periods or a similar job that um, they would be eligible for. So it's not just they go away to duty for six months and you have to give their job back. It's a more extended time period. So it's important for you to be familiar with those requirements. We're not done yet on some of the anti-discrimination laws. So the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act of 2008, or GINA as it's referred to, is a law that protects individuals from genetic discrimination in health insurance, but also in employment. And a lot of times when I bring this up to employers, they say, well, what's this got to do with me as an employer? I don't do any kind of genetic testing or don't even have access to health records for people. Well, it can be more subtle than that. So if you know of an employee who has a parent, for instance, that has a medical condition and you believe that to be a hereditary condition that may pass to that employee of yours, and so you decide, well, I'm not going to promote that person because they likely may con uh, get this disease later in life and, and they won't be able to perform as well in the job. Um, that would be an example of the type of discrimination that's protected under this law. So you've got to be careful, not just of actual genetic information that you have in a report, but just some of the assumptions that we might make. And then finally, we have uh, pay. So there are a couple of laws related to pay where we do not want to discriminate um, against individuals. So the Equal Pay Act says employers can't pay female employees less than male employees for equal work on jobs that require equal skill, effort, and responsibility. And so you wanna make sure that you look at your pay scales and identify possible equal pay complaints or issues that may arise. So it is justified um, to have different pay for individuals in the same job title, as long as you can point to varying levels of either responsibility or duties or skill requirements or even education requirements. But it's not okay to pay people doing the same work different wages 
just because, say, the male negotiated a higher salary when he started, that puts him on a path to consistently make more money than the woman in that same position doing the same kind of work. And that is illegal. And um, there's been guidance from the federal government agencies that you do need to go in and review your pay practices and make sure that even um, individuals who maybe negotiated higher on raises and promotions over time, they're not being paid more significantly than um, individuals of the opposite sex in, in the same positions of doing the same kind of work. So you've got to be careful with that. So we've talked about a number of different areas related to um, anti-discrimination and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or EEOC are responsible for enforcement for a lot of these different areas. And I just wanted to give you a couple of stats on that just to paint that picture for you what it looks like. So in fiscal year 16, the EEOC received 90,000, um, over 90,000 charges of discrimination in the workplace. And that equated to about $480 million for victims of discrimination in private, federal and state and local government workplaces. So it's across the board. An average out-of-court settlement is about $40,000, and 10% of wrongful termination and discrimination cases result in a million-dollar settlement, so it can be pretty significant to the business. What we've seen in terms of the largest areas of um, claims that are filed with the EEOC include retaliation, race, disability, sex, and age discrimination. And with retaliation, you've got to be really careful with that, so if in employee comes forward to you and makes some claim of discrimination in the workplace, whether that's informally through some of your processes that you have in the company or formally you get notified by the EEOC or your state um, agencies that can enforce those things, you can't retaliate against that employee. That's also, dis or that's also illegal. And so you can't make decisions about their employment based on the fact that they've simply come forward and had some sort of claim against you. So that's something that um, definitely has risen to the top in terms of those EEOC claims, and you've got to make sure you train your managers well so that they know that they can't, dis they can't discriminate, but also they can't retaliate against employees in the workplace when they bring those claims forward. All right, so covered a number of areas related to anti-discrimination, and I want to talk just briefly about some of the uh, federal laws related to compensation administration. So the big one is the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the federal law that governs payment of wages for employees. That includes minimum wage, overtime payment, and employee classification. And the wage and hour division has been focused on enforcement for a number of years here. In the last five years, they've addressed claims for over 1.3 million workers, which has related or which has equated to more than $1.2 billion in back wages. That's billion with a B. Um, so back wages over the last five years recovered by the wage and hour division. And as you may know, they're able to go in and assess uh, back wage payments for two years in cases of um, inadvertent misclassification or, or wrongdoing. But if it's willful, so you intentionally did that and they can show that it was intentional that you misclassified or you didn't pay overtime appropriately, they can actually go back three years. And in addition to that back uh, wages that they may recover, there are um, additional penalties that may be assessed for you as well. 
So in fiscal year 2017, they found more than $270 million for over 240,000 workers. So it's a pretty significant dollar amount, but also amount of employees that are impacted like are impacted by this. And on average, about $1,125 for each employee um, that has filed, they found money due back to them. So it's not a significant amount when you look at the averages, but it can be significant to those employees, especially if you have low wage earners. So we want to make sure we're paying them correctly. The other um, piece of compensation administration that we've seen a lot of activity around lately is in regard to classification. So we're talking about whether someone is exempt or non-exempt from overtime. And in 2016, we were all set to increase the um, limit of that salary threshold from 23,660 to about $47,000. And then there was a last minute court injunction filed. And with the new administration that came in at that period in time, they decided not to um, move forward on any kind of defense within the DOL of that injunction. So really it's just kind of been on hold. It hasn't gone away necessarily. It's just been sitting there waiting for somebody to take action. And the Department of Labor has had some recent activity and different sources are estimating that later in the fall, possibly October, we may see a new rule published, which means there's going to be a comment period after that before it could ever become a law. But that new rule will designate a different salary threshold in terms of employee classification as exempt from overtime, but may also change some of the other requirements. So you'll want to pay attention to that. If you have a lot of exempt employees that may be impacted by that or non-exempt employees, either way, you'll want to pay attention to what comes out in the fall and provide comment and then also be aware of what the final changes may be. Everything's up in the air, though, so just stay tuned. Um, as the elections approach for midterms, things could look differently next year. And then, of course, in 2020 elections, we're already looking ahead to that in terms of how it may affect some of the um, regulations that we see. And then finally, another aspect of classification has to do with whether you classify an, an employee as an employee or as an independent contractor. So sometimes employers think they have an independent contractor versus an employee, and really the um, IRS comes in, they have controlling authority here, and they say, actually, this should be an employee. And so there's estimated about 3.4 million employees that are classified as independent contractors when they're actually employees. And what that means is not only some payment of taxes that might be due to the employee for overtime, for instance, um, but also some penalties. And employers can be fined by the IRS if they suspect fraud or intentional misconduct. And criminal penalties may be assessed as well. So that can look like $1,000 per worker and even jail time of up to a year in prison can be assessed if you're willfully misclassifying people as independent contractors when they're actually employees of the business. And that's not a really straightforward process. So it's a good idea to work with your advisors or your employment law attorneys on that to make sure that you're classifying people correctly. Moving on quickly here to benefits administration. And again, these are all just quick touch points that we're talking through because there are so much related to employment law, as you know. 
Um, so I just wanted to make sure um, you just have some reminders here to look at some of these aspects and make sure you're doing everything in compliance with the law. With Benefits Administration, we've got a lot of requirements related to ERISA, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, and a number of things you are required to do related to providing notices and appropriate time periods for your employees. You want to make sure that you're compliant with all of those requirements. And then you also have fiduciary responsibility for um, the plans that you provide your employees to. So it's essential to be aware of what that looks like and who's ultimately responsible for the plan administration in your business, who is administering it, but also who's making decisions about the plan. And are they aware of their fiduciary responsibility and making sure that they are in compliance with those requirements? COBRA, um, which is the law that provides continuing health care for usually 18 to 36 months following loss of eligibility due to termination or divorce or change in status. Um, those are some of the more common ones. You want to make sure that you're complying with those notice requirements, but also all of the aspects related to administration once the employee is on COBRA too. With um, PIPACA or ACA or Obamacare or Trump Care, whatever you want to call it these days, there are a lot of requirements, of course, related to do you have to provide health coverage or not, and does it need to be affordable and provide minimum value and all of those aspects. But what can trip employers up sometimes, especially is those notice requirements. So there are some requirements for new hires, but then also some annual requirements that you need to be aware of, making sure that you are abiding by those. And then finally, Family and Medical Leave Act is an area where um, I always see this as a concern when I'm out auditing in organizations. It's, it just seems like employers have a really hard time of administering the appropriate notice requirements within the required timeframes. So you want to make sure you're providing adequate uh, notice of rights and responsibilities, but also clarity in what the employee has to do and um, whether or not their leave is approved and all of those related requirements. The other aspect with FMLA is you want to make sure your employee or I'm sorry your managers are not interfering with an individual's right to take FMLA leave and of course not retaliating against employees if they are taking leave for approved um, conditions or um, approved leave reasons. So you want to make sure you provide training to your managers on those aspects as well. And of course, FMLA applies to um, employers 50 or over. With um, the ACA, some of those notice requirements, while you smaller organizations may think you don't have to provide coverage because you are 50 or less or you have less than 50 employees, um, some of those notice requirements still apply to you and some of the changes that you've had to make to your health plans may also apply. So you want to make sure that you're paying attention to those, even though you're a smaller company and you may not have to provide coverage. Real quickly on federal contractor compliance, if you um, generally, if you're a federal contractor or subcontractor with 50 or more employees um, who have entered into at least one contract of $50,000 or more with the federal government, you must have a written affirmative action program, and that typically will cover recruitment or hiring and promotion of women and minorities. There are other aspects of um, various laws that also relate to affirmative action for qualified individuals with disabilities and 
uh, veterans. So you need to make sure if you have any federal contracts or if you're a subcontractor as well, you understand if you are required to have an affir affirmative action program and what does it need to cover? Is it for women, minorities, dis individuals with disabilities and or veterans or all of those? And make sure that you're actually working the program so it's not sufficient just to have a written document that you keep on yourself and or on your shelf and you update every year. You also have to be working the program. So periodic review against the goals that you set and making sure that management's trained on what your plan is and your program is and ensuring that you are looking at your goal progress and adjusting as you need to. Related to uh, health and safety in the workplace, as a business owner, you have a responsibility to ensure the safety of everybody you employ. So not only does failing to meet safety guidelines expose you to lawsuits by employees who are injured on the job, but it can also result in crippling fines from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration or your state administered program if you are subject to it instead. But it's critical for you to ensure that your company has thorough workers' compensation coverage as well to remedy workers' um, injuries and to insulate yourself from lawsuits. And you've got to be really clear on how you administer those programs. I've seen time and time again where an employee has decided they get injured on the job, but they aren't forced to go to get coverage, and the employer does not provide any sort of documentation that the employee refused. Um, treatment and then that bites them in the future when the employee may change their story and the injury they sustain on the job is worse than they thought it was and that can just get you in, in some trouble and create some liability for you. So you want to make sure you have really clear documented processes and procedures regarding injuries on the job but also make that a part of your general safety program overall. If you happen to be alerted to an OSHA violation, don't hesitate to correct it. Um, there are significant fines that can be uh, levied against you. So for instance, there was a um, Dollar Tree store in Boston that um, they had allegations of blocking exits and other hazardous conditions. So that led to a fine of $175,000 plus. So those aren't insignificant insignificant dollars that you have to look at as a business owner, but also that you have to um, tie up time and resources to address those complaints and those issues. So making sure you have that program for a safe workplace to start with and you're regularly reviewing policies and procedures can help protect you there. Immigration law has been a hot topic um, since the elections in 2016, of course, and prior to that, but we've seen a lot of different changes over the last year and a half with the new administration in terms of where enforcement is, and um, it's important for you as an employer to keep up on those trends in, uh, in the federal government that impact those Im immigration laws, but also to make sure you're compliant with all of the laws that have been in, in existence for some time. So one of the things that I'm sure you're all aware of is you have to have employees complete a Form I-9 within three days of employment. But what you may not be aware of is how significant the fines have increased over the last year and a half. So um, in January of 2017, the penalty 
assessments for violations occurring after uh, November 2nd, 2015 change pretty significantly. So if you get audited um, by ICE or another agency comes in for a different reason and, and suggests that I-9s need to be looked at, then you can actually have some pretty significant fines that come out of that. And my experience in helping organizations and auditing their I-9s is there are usually a significant amount of forms that are filled out incorrectly, regardless of how clear they think their processes and procedures are. Um, I see this time and time again where there are just a lot of minor violations, minor technical violations is what the um, enforcement agencies would call those, but you can still be assessed pretty significant penalties. So what they do is they put you in a tiered category to assess your penalty based on the number of I-9 forms you should have completed for all of the individuals in your organization. And based on that percentage of how many had correct and some other factors, you could have um, fines assessed on a technical violation anywhere from $220 all the way up to over $2,000. And that's per issue. So if you have two employees that did not um, date the form right, for instance, that could be considered a technical violation. And if it's just your first time and you're in one of those lower tiers, that's not gonna be a significant amount of money. But if you have had issues before, um, then that can certainly add up. Now, if you're willfully employing illegal aliens or individuals unauthorized to work in the US, those fines are, are much higher. So again, those are based on a percentage and some other factors that they look at, but that can range anywhere from $548 to over $20,000 per individual that's employed or per um, issue that they find with you not appropriately following procedures with that in, in verifying employment to work in, in the United States and authorization to work. So again, this changed in 2017 and, and I'm not sure everyone was aware of that. So making sure you have your I-9 forms completed accurately and you're reviewing those on a regular basis is really important because you may be subject to some pretty significant fines with that if, if you do get audited. Uh, last thing I want to say about some of the employment related laws and that compliance is just record keeping. You have to make sure you have an appropriate records retention schedule for all of the documentation that you keep, whether it's electronic or paper or both. And it varies by type of record. So for an application, for instance, the recommendation is you keep those on file for a year. For payroll records, we're usually seeing two to seven years, depending upon what the information contains. For some health medical related information that could be um, related to any kind of OSHA violations, it's 30 years. So you need to be pretty clear on how you retain documents, when you purge them. And it is equally important important to purge records as well because for instance if you were audited um, by ICE and um, they did an I-9 audit on you let's say you had some old I-9 documents in your files because you just never got rid of them well you would be responsible for those if they found some technical violations whereas if you purge those out of your organization because the employee hasn't worked with you for a number of years then you would not even have those on file. So you wanna make sure that you're purging documents and records as appropriate 
and making sure you have a retention schedule on file. And if that's something that you're interested in seeing, I've got a basic one I can send to you if you want to just provide your contact information to me. So a lot of employment law risk, I didn't cover them all, obviously, we don't have time to do that. We could spend an hour going over any of the individual laws that I talked to, but wanted to just get in top of your mind or um, at the forefront of your mind again, some of the things that you need to be reviewing regularly. And even if you think your processes look good and your procedures are safe, looking at your practices in each of those areas is something to do, I would say on an annual or biannual basis in terms of going through and auditing your procedures and your processes, making sure your people are trained adequately, that you're keeping up with the changes in those employment laws because things are changing quickly even when the laws are not necessarily changing as fast. And what I mean by that is some of the enforcement um, emphasis may change. And so things that weren't um, looked at as important, say by the Obama administration, that has changed in terms of where employment uh, law agencies are focusing their enforcement efforts under the Trump administration. So definitely something to be aware of. And then always make sure you use employment law attorneys and, and expert consultants as needed. So you can't know everything. And I think we all know that. So know enough to know when you need help. And going to those right sources can be really critical for you to help manage all of those aspects of employment law compliance. So before we move on to the rest of the webinar, um, wanted to ask you which area of employment law compliance most concerns you. So is it related to anti-discrimination laws, compensation and benefits administration, federal contractor compliance, health and safety, or immigration law? You can just provide some information there. All right, so looks like um, we're split uh, between anti-discrimination laws and compensation and benefits administration, which is pretty typical from um, what I would see in a lot of organizations, you know, especially with things going on in our environment on anti-discrimination, the Me Too movement, to some of the rhetoric out where people are um, looking at political divisions, race relations, all of those different things. I think it's critical for you to look at your processes and procedures there and make sure you're doing everything you can to protect the organization. And then Comp and Benefits Administration, just being on top of those areas, using your advisors. Um, there are certainly a lot of individuals out there that are highly equipped and trained in those specific areas. So making sure you reach out to those individuals. And of course, the other ones, same things apply there. All right, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about um, some of the other aspects of risk in your organization. And one is recruitment. So some of the larger areas of risk in terms of recruiting have to do with discrimination claims or damaging your organizational image or reputation, what happens when you have a bad hire and those impacts, and even cost. So um, you want to be really consistent in how you approach recruitment, and that's really an, an essential piece of providing a fair hiring process that helps you avoid those discrimination claims. Um, the EEOC has published guidelines on how to ensure fair practices in, in hiring so that you don't have discrimination 
in your process. And it's critical to look at this on a regular basis because sometimes things shift a little bit and you might not realize what you're doing is in fact discriminatory, even though you don't mean it, um, that still could get you a claim. If you don't have consistent hiring practices in place, or your hiring managers aren't effectively trained in those practices, you're at risk of damaging your company's image or um, your reputation in the marketplace. If employees have a bad experience with your company, they may share that information with others and you could potentially lose them not as an employee, but as a customer too. So you wanna think about how you look at your recruitment practices being fair, being consistent, making sure you're following up with people um, the other piece is you can end up with a bad hire, though, if you're not consistent in using fair practices and um, looking at screening appropriately, then you hire someone in who can be poisoned to the organization on the negative end of that. I mean, and a, a, another aspect of that is they're just not productive, they're not a good fit, but that creates some challenges, too. Um, if we look at stats by the Department of Labor, they would estimate that the cost of a bad hire is at least 30% of the employee's first year earnings. And things that play into that, initial onboarding expenses, recruiting efforts, productivity drains, you know, thinking about bringing someone into the workplace that just doesn't pull their weight, that impacts other employees in the organization as well. So some of the things that you can do to mitigate those risk areas related to recruitment include making sure you establish consistent hiring practices in alignment with the EEOC guidelines on employment selection procedures. I think it's really critical for employees to be familiar with those. They're published on the EEOC website if you need them. Um, but making sure you really understand what you're doing in terms of um, putting that ad out in the work or in the marketplace, how you screen candidates, how you interview, if you do assessments, all of those pieces of your recruitment process could be discriminatory. And so you want to make sure that you're evaluating that with real clarity and focusing in on what that looks like. You wanna make sure you clearly identify the knowledge, skills, and abilities needed prior to posting a position and the criteria by which or candidates will be evaluated. So be really clear before you ever post the job, what do you need in the position and how will you evaluate the candidate? Because if you change things midstream, then you could be liable for a discrimination claim. So if you are looking at resumes and you start to screen a certain way based on some feedback or you weren't clear on some of your criteria up front, what if that unintentionally screens out a certain demographic of individuals or a certain age group or so on, um, then you have some risk identified in that area. So you wanna be crystal clear with the hiring manager in terms of setting that job requirement and screening criteria. You've gotta look at your sourcing methods too. So if I always advertise my jobs that I have available in one particular place, I'm likely going to get the same candidates applying over and over. And so you've got to be a little more creative and think outside of the box of attracting different kinds of candidates and going to where they are. So candidates tend to reflect the current employee population or they should um, if you have a diverse employee population. But if you don't, you're going to get the same kinds of employees. 
So you want to, like I said, use that out-of-box thinking. Go to where they are. So, for instance, use a digital billboard if you want to reach them in a certain neighborhood or area. Um, I heard someone recommend you should post on community boards or even church boards, um, bulletin boards that they have in attracting certain types of individuals and expanding your employment population that you're looking at. So you've got to get really creative in how you source candidates. You want to be really careful in how you conduct screening. So if you're using assessments, making sure that they don't have unintentional bias towards a certain demographic, making sure you check references. I can't underscore how important that is. Even though you don't usually get a lot of information, you'll be surprised when you do get some information. Um, sometimes what people will say, but it's always good to check and just take a few minutes to do that. Conducting background checks and credit checks when applicable or appropriate, that is important for certain positions and you wanna outline that in advance, um, which positions you would screen in that way. And then of course, any physical capacity testing is really important. So you wanna tie that to the job requirements and make sure that if there are some physical requirements for the job that's listed as a job requirement, but you also assess for that too. That can save you a lot of time and resources and heartache for your employees sometimes in the long run. With assessments, um, you know, those are great tools and they're a piece of the process and, and I highly recommend them. Just make sure you evaluate them for um, screening validity and reliability over time. We uh, recommend using assessments. We use them with a lot of employers that we work with and I was recently helping one client with a search process and they kind of were kicking themselves after the fact because we didn't end up running an assessment for whatever reason. Um, and there were things that would have been predictable that that individual was having trouble with that they hired and they actually ended up having to let that person go. And I think we would have seen some of those things in assessments. So certainly those can be very helpful. And then finally, you wanna train your managers on best practices for screening, interviewing, and documentation. So those individuals that are hiring, that are conducting the interviews, that are screening, you need to be very clear on what they should say, what they shouldn't say, what they can document, what they shouldn't document, and just how they create an impression for the company when they're in the process of um, employment um, or hiring for employment purposes. So those are all areas that you can uh, work on to mitigate some of that risk. Employee retention is another significant area of human capital risk for employers, and maybe it's one of the bigger risks. Um, if you look at some of the Gallup surveys, 70% of employees are not engaged. So they're sleepwalking through work or they're actively disengaged, meaning they're miserable, they're toxic, and they're taking everybody else down with them. That's a significant amount of employees in your workplace that are not engaged or disengaged and are at risk of leaving the organization. And with some of them, we probably do want them to leave, but for the most of them, we don't. We just want to see if we can flip that engagement and um, drive their retention within the company. So if you have employees at risk for departure, you might lose key knowledge or even fire or passion in your organizations. And that can lead to damage to your external image or reputation and even loss of customers. So what's the cost? Well, we know estimates vary pretty widely in terms of what turnover costs. Some of the studies I looked at in preparing for this webinar 
um, said it was anywhere from 16 to 213% of an employee's salary. So that's a pretty significant stretch, but I thought it'd be good to just break the numbers down a little bit. So in 2016, for example, latest information I could find, or latest year I could find data on, the total turnover across industries on average was 17.8% and that included voluntary and involuntary turnover. So if you break it down a little bit and we just look at averages, let's say the average employee across the board gets $40,000 a year in wages. And if we're looking at the average cost of turnover somewhere between 16 and 213%, let's just call it 100% of that wage. In a 100-person company, this costs $720,000 if we're looking at industry average for turnover across all industries. And if I just look at voluntary turnover, it's 12.8% or $520,000. So what could you do with an extra half a million dollars in your budget in a 100-person company? Pretty much um, a lot. <laughs> so you could give in or you could give some significant pay increases if you wanted to adjust your compensation. You could significantly increase your benefits you provide. You could throw a really big party. You could do a lot to increase employee engagement if you just invest more in those employees and reduce that turnover cost to the organization. Turnover has been trending upward since 2011. And so you want to be aware of the fact that it's, a, it's an employee-friendly economy right now. Uh, unemployment is super low and it's easier for employees to quit a job and go find another job. So it's critical for you to focus on retaining your employees by providing work and a work environment that they enjoy. So what do we do to focus on employee retention? Well, a couple of different things. You can gather employee input in different ways and you've got to have good management. So with employee input, ask employees what they want. Ask them how they feel about work. What could they do to, what could you do? What could they do to improve things? And don't make it just on your shoulders. Ask them how they are going to contribute too, but continue to ask them. If you do an employee survey in one year, follow up on that, do some mini surveys after that. Um, you, can, you don't have to conduct a full-blown employee survey every year. You could follow up on just the key issues that you wanted to address and, to address and see if there's progress on those. Another way to get input is through focus groups. So um, just identifying groups to have informal conversation with or to have more targeted questions with, but uh, just getting more input from employees about why they enjoy working at your organization and, and what are some of the challenges they have. Another way to get input is through stay interviews. So most organizations, if they ask employees why they work there or why they would leave, it's usually when they've already given notice and it's too late to do anything in an exit interview for that individual. So it's important to talk to employees that you think are really happy with their current situation and ask them what keeps them. Try to expand on that. And the other piece of that is to um, manage all of that input. So a lot of organizations will form a committee to manage that input, and that al allows the employees to take charge and lead the change. So if you're getting all of this data in on what employees think we need to do differently, let employees help prioritize. Then they understand there are all, always costs and benefits associated with every decision that's made. And that can even in itself help um, employee engagement levels. The other piece of um, retention, though, is uh, management. 
So it's critical for you to hire good managers and train them and keep training them. We train on skills all the time to keep us fresh and updated. We don't always train on management and leadership. So it's, it's critical that you um, put those pieces into your training programs as well. So it's critical for managers to set expectations and connect the individual to the mission of the company, making that employee feel connected to that overall mission or goal, regardless of what their job is, is, is so important for employee engagement. Also providing feedback on performance and allowing employees to grow and develop is, is so critical. Only 29% of employees that were surveyed in a, a recent survey um, rated their performance review as effective. So not even a third of employees feel like they're getting enough information re regarding their, their performance and how they can improve. Some would say that the annual review is dead, that it doesn't provide value. And I think and there is still some room for it, but if you're only giving feedback once a year, then it's not effective. You've got to give feedback in real time, focus the person on what they need to do, what their goals are, what their development is, and consider how you adjust as a manager to make employees feel valued and part of the conversation. It's a two-way street and it's even more collaborative than that sometimes as well um, in terms of giving employee feedback. Another area of risk for the organization is um, succession planning. So when we talk about succession planning, we're thinking both crisis planning and long-term planning. And we wanna make sure that we assess key positions and create development plans for individuals in the organization so that we're just not left in the lurch if something happens to someone or they choose to leave. And I'm not gonna go into a ton of detail on this. Um, if some of you have listened to some of our other webinars, Marjorie Ingle did a succession planning webinar to more formally or her structurally outline that process so you can access that in our archive webinars. Um, but I will talk just a little bit about it. But before we do that, poll question, do you have a documented succession plan in your organization? So your options are yes for key management only, yes for key management and employees, no, we've discussed, but it's not documented. Um, no, we've, dis we've only discussed the need for one or you're not sure or other. Looks like 23% of you said yes, that you do for key management only. Um, some of you, 9% do for other employees too. 30% say no, we've discussed, but it's not documented. 19% know you need one. Um, and then another 19% unsure, so a wide variety of responses there. Only about a third of companies have a formal succession plan, and there are some significant risks related to not having one. So some of them are related to some of the retention risks that we talked about and some of the costs there, but certainly key employee departures would be a, a great area of risk. So that could be planned retirement, could be a surprise departure, Employees may even choose to leave if they feel the business isn't taking care of them, or maybe they think the business is at risk in the future. Um, all of those different um, areas could impact that employee and then th them leaving could impact the business significantly. Discrimination claims could be an area of risk for you in this area. So if there aren't well thought out and documented plans on who was considered or who wasn't considered for succession, you may be opening that door to discrimination because somebody might think, oh, well, they didn't consider me because I'm in 
this protected category. And really you might've considered them, but had some business reasons why you didn't want to include them in the discussion. So documenting and, and those discussions and your thoughts on a plan are, are critical for that area as well. There could be some damage to organizational image or reputation if an employee leaves unhappily or they didn't feel they were provided opportunities for advancement. They could leave, they could take people with them, they could take your customers, their product, your products and services. All of that could damage the business. And related to that, some business losses. So would you lose customers if there isn't that relationship building going on with the next generation? We're seeing that more and more where um, when businesses transition to next generation of ownership or management, the um, individuals that were managing those upper level relationships don't have relationships with the next generation. So that can um, increase a loss for the business. And then finally, costs. All of these items have a cost to them. And some of it relates back to the discussion on retention. So when employees leave, that can be a pretty significant number but some of it relates to the loss of customers or businesses or your business when people leave as well. So those are certainly areas to be aware of. So how do you mitigate risk in succession planning? Well, you've got to differentiate plans between crisis and long-term succession needs. There are certain ways that we would adjust if um, someone had a, a accident and they couldn't come to work for six weeks versus if we know someone's retiring in a year, how would we plan? And that looks different usually. You've got to plan for management and ownership succession too, and the processes look different. But in addition, you need to plan for key employee succession. So it's not just management. Sometimes there are people that have critical knowledge or technical skills in the organization that you need to plan for how you would adapt if they left or who would fill the bench behind them. So you've got to develop that bench strength and then you communicate the succession plan. You don't have to promise anything to employees because things change all the time, but making them feel like there's a place for them in the future is important. The last thing we're gonna cover is related to data management. So if you think about who has access to some of your most sensitive data in the company, it's probably accounting or finance, it could be IT, it could be HR, depends on your structure, but in any way, HR has to ensure it's effectively managed. So areas of risk, we hear about this all the time, another breach of confidential data out in the market. Um, in the digital age, it's just become part of the life we live in. And it's not just customer data. We see that a lot with credit card information being compromised, but it's also employee data. So um, there are so many devices out there that we provide our management that have access to information that could be customer, but also employee data. You've got laptops and tablets and smartphones and other de devices that connect to the internet. So you've got to have a plan for all of those. And it's estimated that the average cost for a US company's data breach is $225 for every record of sensitive or confidential information compromised. And that can be higher in healthcare and financial organizations because they're in more regulated industries. But costs include things like using forensic teams, audit services, crisis team management, and you may also have to pay some fees for identity theft protection for employees or customers. In most cases, hackers only need minutes to compromise your system. And while 52% of breaches are caused by a malicious or criminal attack, system glitches and human error account for 24% each of attacks. So let that sink in a minute. 
human error accounts for almost a quarter of data breaches in or glitches um, in terms of releasing data into uh, hands that shouldn't have it. So that is something that you can control that you need to do something about. It's usually someone outside of the organization that even finds a breach. And in 2017, it took over 190 days to identify a breach and 66 to contain it. A lot of damage can happen when you have a data breach. So what do you do to mitigate risk here? We want to work with your technology department to assess and manage risk. So what data loss prevention systems might need to be ramped up, and especially on that employee data that's sensitive. What controls do you have in place? If your IT group isn't skilled in this area, use a consultant. There are a lot of good ones out there. Um, training is another area that HR needs to be responsible for. So this is across the board with all of your employees. They have to be aware that you can't just click on an email link every time you get some phishing email. There are some great training options that are published for free by the Department of Homeland Security. So they make it easy for us to provide some training to employees. Um, before we wrap up, have a chance just to get our final poll question in. Um, of the things we talked about today, what area concerns you most about managing well? Employment law com compliance, recruitment and retention, succession planning, data management, or all of the above? Looks like most of you um, have a concern either on employment law compliance, recruitment and retention, or all of the above. So um, certainly a lot of risk out there and things that we need to be aware of. We've covered a lot of information. Um, I appreciate you hanging on uh, with me today, and, and I can stay on for a few minutes to answer questions. But I just want to say in terms of a plan for action, make sure you're reviewing processes, procedures, and policies on a very regular basis. It helps to have a third party come in periodically. You don't need to have them do that every year, but certainly every three to five years, having a third party can help you because you just get used to doing the same things. Um, if you have turnover, that's a good chance to do that too. Um, if there are some questionable reasons for turnover, even more reason to review those processes and procedures and policies. Train your supervisors and management. They're critical in all of the aspects we talked about. They need to know employment law. They need to know how to recruit and retain. They're essential in succession planning and also data management protection. And then know when to seek outside help and establish those relationships in advance. So before you have a problem, make sure you have relationships with um, expert consultants or attorneys that you know you can go to when you have an issue.